It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And I mean it. <laughs> and I think it's the hour of bloom. So you know what that means? Do you mean it? <laughs> it's the hour of doom and bloom. That's right. The hour of the doom and bloom survival medicine hour. Welcome, friends and neighbors. This is a nest of neutrality <laughs> in a nefarious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900 posts, 924 actually, <laughs> post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I am Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess <laughs> with the mostest. That's right. I'm also known... Did I say that? Are yes, we? you did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. Also known as Nurse Amy, our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. We are the gang of two here to help you keep it together, even when everything else falls apart. This is what happens when I'm trying to do two things at once. Well, don't do two <laughs> things at once. This I'm requires sorry. your absolute 100% attention. I'm so busy, though. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident <laughs> with a lascivious loon? Oh, well, no. our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. Absolutely. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nursing, we strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern medicine's get up and go is got up and went, use some of that common sense that the good Lord gave you to learn what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. If you do, you'll never have to prove your common sense in any other way. Now, smarter still would be to get some supplies and an amazing medical kit. And what better place to get it than from the amazing Nurse Amy's entire line <laughs> of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They're meant to handle issues that you'll face if help is not on the way. 
and they're designed by Indeed, a real doctor, I am a real doctor, and advanced <laughs> registered nurse practitioner. Check them out again at store.doomandbloom.net. You will be glad you did. I just want to mention that real doctor thing. Not only are you a real doctor, but you play a real doctor on, on YouTube. On yes, YouTube. on yes. TV and, and YouTube. And we'll talk about that right now. <laughs> Give us a turn, Vern. We learn as much from you guys as you do from us, probably more. So connect with us. It's so easy. Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Well, please feel free to contact us by email at drbonespodcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. What you're listening to right now is a podcast at AOL.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages you can like and get information from. Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, and our other podcast, all about current events. That's American Survival Radio, now broadcast at a number of different stations throughout the country: KPJC, Salem, Oregon. KRFE, the voice of Lubbock, Texas, you do us a tremendous favor by following our Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and social media outlets. Thank you very much, folks. Now, listen, don't forget to see us when we travel the country, (laughs) spreading the good news of disaster preparedness. We'll be in Germantown, Tennessee, and I think that that's near Memphis. It's like a suburb of Memphis, yeah. Right, and that's going to be, I think, February 24th and 5th. Yes. I believe. You always ask me when I don't have my calendar in front uh, of me. Well, no problem. But we'll, I can get it very That easily. weekend, we're going to be there. <laughs> and uh, New Orleans, Louisiana will be in Nolens right after Mardi Gras, March 4th to 5th. So that's just the next week. So we'll be traveling, traveling, traveling all over the place this year. And I hope that you'll come and see our lectures on survival medicine, maybe take our Awesome wound care, suturing and stapling class, and maybe get a medical kit. But the most important thing is we want you to just come by and say hi. That is our main thing. Just get out there and shake hands with the people that support us. We appreciate it. You don't know how much. Absolutely. Accurate dates for that Memphis show oh. is the f- <laughs> Saturday and Sunday. February 25th and 26th. I think think we said the 24th. But it is Saturday and Sunday. And you were correct that the NPS show uh, near Baton Rouge in Gonzales, Louisiana, is on the 4th and 5th. Again, that's the NPS Expo. There you go. So my misspokenness has been... It's okay. Fixed. Absolutely. Thanks to your accurate reporting. Thank you so (laughs) much. Well, we always try to circle back and fix things, you know. I'm going to talk just for a second today. Yes. On, or we're going to be talking a lot about, we're going to be talking about a lot of medical things, but I want to talk a little bit about history today because we are coming up on President's Day and we celebrate on that day the 44 men who have held the office. And that is beginning with George Washington. Actually, Donald Trump is the 45th president. Yep, four or five. But only 44 men have actually held the office. Grover Cleveland, who was president during the end of the 19th century, was elected twice, but not consecutively. So he was actually both the 21st and the 23rd president of the United States. 
Now, the question is, was George Washington the first president? Now, that seems like the simplest of questions, right, that even a child could answer. Well, they did start him off as number one. So when we're counting these presidents, he... He's technically number one, but I know you've got a backstory to that. That's right. You know that the United States declared its independence in 1776, but George Washington didn't take office as president until 1789. So who was in charge of running the country until then? Now, naysayers say no one, but there were a number of patriots who indeed had the title of president. The big question is president of what? Now, there were a number of presidents of the Continental Congress, and that's beginning with the man who signed his name in large script on the Declaration of Independence. That was John Hancock. But were the 13 colonies now one country on July 4th, 1776? Not officially. It wasn't until the Articles of Confederation were signed in 1781 that we can say for a fact that the 13 colonies were a new unified nation called the United States of America. Now, the first man elected president under the Articles of Confederation, who didn't resign immediately, at least, was one John Hanson of Frederick County, Maryland. Now, you might say, who? Well, I'll tell you, like many of our founding fathers, John Hanson and and the eight men who served as president after him, but before George Washington, they've been relegated to the dustbin of history. I know. They're not even in any books. That's very true. I knew when I grew up, there wasn't. Any mention that anyone existed before George Washington in that role. But a lot of them did make the ultimate sacrifices for the birth of our country. A lot of them died penniless, uncelebrated. And I have an article called Fate of the Forgotten Founding Fathers. If you want to check that out, that's on the website. Now, once the signing of the Articles of Confederation took place, a president was needed to run the country. John Hansen was actually chosen unanimously by Congress, which, by the way, included George Washington at the time. And as the first president, he had quite the shoes to fill. No one had ever been president of a United States, and the responsibilities were vague and ill-defined, and there were a lot of issues to be settled. As the War for Independence wound down, Continental troops were demanding, guess what, back salaries. There was not a lot of money back then. A lot of them were not in favor of the new government, even considered installing George Washington as king. John Hanson was responsible for quelling this discontent and held the rickety Congress together and the rickety nation. Hanson's also responsible for ejecting foreign troops out of the new country. This wasn't easy. Many of our allies, like the French, felt they had a claim to special privileges because they helped the American cause. So he not only did that, he also established the Treasury, the War Department, the Foreign Affairs Department, and all of this he did in his term of one year. Well, that's pretty amazing. Now, after that, the men that were elected as president of the of the Congress were Elias Boudinot, 1782-83, Thomas Mifflin, 1783-84, Richard Henry Lee, 1784-85, John Hancock. How about that? He was elected, but he didn't serve because of illness in 1785. Dr. David Ramsey in 1785 to 1786. Uh, Nathaniel Gorham, also 1786, uh, 1786, excuse me. I know, right? Arthur St. Clair, 1787 to 88. And Cyrus Griffin, 1788 to 89. So why don't we recognize these patriots as our first president? Because we didn't yet have a constitution that gave the federal government any significant power. As such, they served as president of Congress more than president of 
a truly united country. Therefore, indeed, George Washington was the first president to serve under a firm constitution that established the United States that we know today. Absolutely. But I have a question. Who voted for these people? The Congress. Just the Congress. Yes. So only the representatives. Right. Of course, the people voted for the representatives. Okay. So it was a rep- representative, but we didn't have any right. say. It was a republic type of system. There you go. That's right. Interesting. So I wonder our, how many people voted back then. Could you imagine how difficult it was to have good voter turnout? Although maybe they maybe they thought it was an amazing privilege and there was very high voter turnout. Well, there was a certainly a level of novelty to it. They certainly yeah. didn't do a lot of voting under uh, King, George. King George III, although they did yes. vote for houses of burgesses and other old timey sounding legislative bodies uh, that were like parliament i guess mm-hmm. so that did happen but the first presidents they have faded into history but you want to know something don't forget their service to a fragile new entity called the united states of america hey we want to talk a little bit about allergies we've been talking about that for the last two or three weeks and finally <laughs> i want to get to the end of our series, our ser- and that is on the worst possible allergic reaction, and that is called anaphylaxis, anaphylactic shock. And indeed, anaphylaxis is the opposite of prophylaxis. Prophylaxis means protection, and anaphylaxis means anti-protection, and that's what happens when your immune system goes haywire and overreacts to an allergen or a allergy-causing substance. Anaphylaxis is a very timely issue because, you know what, there is an epidemic of allergies being reported throughout the world. And, of course, at the worst end of them is anaphylaxis, really the kind of allergy that can actually cost you your life if your immune system goes haywire enough. Now, when drugs are the cause, the explanation is likely that we've simply been using a lot of them these days. And why food should be causing anaphylaxis more often, that confuses us a little bit more. I mean, is is it because we're genetically manipulating food crops? Uh, could we have contaminants maybe in pesticides or in fertilizers? Uh, maybe pollution in general? Is this causing the issue? Well, you know, in any case, the cause of so many anaphylactic events are never identified. They lump them into what we call the idiopathic category. The word idiopathic is medical speak for unknown In other words, we don't know why people are having these severe allergic reactions and having more of them. Now, a few people do die from simple allergic reactions, obviously, but anaphylaxis is much more severe. And if you don't intervene, the person can die from usually respiratory or cardiac arrest. Now, instead of having an allergic reaction, maybe a swelling or redness in an area where you might have had a bee sting or something like that, In anaphylaxis, you have a body-wide kind of swelling and rashes that can be far from the site of where the actual allergen touched you, for example. Uh, Let's say uh, a bee sting. You get uh, stung on the arm. You can wind up having swollen lips or very uh, uh, very swollen around the eyes. So there are a lot of different places that can cause trouble. Your, Your windpipe 
may actually your airways might constrict. It may may be difficulty. There may be difficulty breathing. So these are exaggerated responses that you would see in somebody who has an anaphylactic response that are similar to what you see in very simple allergic reactions, just much, much more so. I mean, you could even faint, you could, your blood pressure could lower, and like I said, you can go into respiratory or cardiac arrest. Now, the treatment for anaphylaxis is pretty straightforward, and that's epinephrine, and known in uh, the UK and in Europe as adrenaline, and that's an injectable solution. Now, other methods of delivery exist, such as oral doses of antihistamines, but the problem with that, that's great for regular allergic reactions, but for anaphylactic shock, they just work too slowly to be of very much use. So that's something that is a problem. Even nasal sprays, especially if your airway is constricted, may not get to you in time to actually help you. Now, there is an auto-injector, the most popular bleeding being the Mylan Corporation's, M-Y-L-A-N Corporation's EpiPen. The EpiPen has been around for, for many years and got in the middle of a big controversy recently when the company decided to raise the price of it about 600%, like 300 bucks or more than that for a two-dose package. And now they're trying to make make a generic version that's about half the cost. But since they were marketing this to the government for much more than what they should have been marketing it for, in other words, charging the government for, the government overpaid so much that they slapped them with a penalty in the hundreds of millions of dollars just recently. It's an awesome medicine, though. And, if, and, and the process is so simple to use. You have the dose already in the injector, and you just take the injector, you open it up, and you just slam it against the upper outer thigh and give the injection. And once you do that, the epinephrine causes the airways in the lungs to open up, and that allows people to breathe. And so these are, and also, it's not just breathing that it affects. It also can reverse hives, swelling. Um, it can help your blood pressure because it constricts your blood vessels, which makes the pressure higher. It can improve, of course, severe skin itching and things like that. Now, let's say that you can't afford the auto-injector. What do you do in that circumstance? Well, you know that vials or ampules of epinephrine are available. They are by prescription, but they are available, and you can indeed get them. What you want to get is 1 to 1,000 epinephrine solution. That contains about 1 milligram of drug per milliliter of solution. So for, And the dosage is as follows. For a person weighing 30 kilograms, that's about 66 pounds or greater. In other words, you weigh more than 66 pounds. What you want to do is give about 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams. And conveniently, that also translates into 0.3 to 0.5 milliliters. And you put that into the same area where the EpiPen would go into into the front lateral aspect of the thigh, maybe around the level of the bottom of your uh, jeans pocket. Now, you, you would have to repeat that dose every 5 to 10 minutes, and you would alternate left and right thighs until improvement is noted. Most of the time, one dose will be sufficient, two doses. Sometimes, rarely, you need more than that. 
Now, remember that epinephrine causes a number of different symptoms. It causes a fast heartbeat. It causes nervousness, maybe a number of other side effects. So this is something that you shouldn't just take the patient home and go watch TV with them. You should get that person to modern medical care if it exists as soon as you possibly can. Now, I want to talk a little bit about our kids and how we've raised such an allergic it appears, generation. Uh, and the thing that you need to know is that the cause of all these allergies might be good parenting. <laughs> might just be good parenting. Oh, no. You know, our... We are to blame. We spend so much time keeping our children with their noses wiped and their hands clean. Uh, that may be great to stop certain infections, but it might be a factor in making them more prone to allergies and even infections right. later on. In 1989, there was a researcher named uh, Dr. David Stratton, and he suggested that uh, the hypothesis that the failure of children to be exposed to bugs and parasites early in their life may be responsible for the epidemic of allergic reactions like, let's say, asthma. Now, this is called the hygiene hypothesis, and the, the lack of exposure to germs has been tied to a lot of different things, everything from hay fever to even multiple sclerosis. So it may be a wide-ranging issue. Now, when most of us lived in farms or in uh, less-than-clean cities... Or out in the rural areas. Exactly, rural homesteads. Uh, we were exposed to plenty of germs from a young age because like, we spent a lot of time outside with animals and with lots of other people. And you know, now the majority of kids aren't motivated to go outside at all. If they have their smartphone in their we hand. We never see certainly. kids outside. Oh, no. When's the last time you saw kids playing I, I don't outside? Rem- and when's the last time you've seen and a we walk, dirty kid? We walk one to two times every single day. I've never, I've, I rarely see kids outside at all. And <laughs> usually it's just going to school and back. And I never see a dirty kid. No. And in the final Even the analogy, playground down the street, there's no kids playing over there. And that's got sand in it, so they're not even getting exposed to dirt. We need to have these kids gardening. That'll get their hands dirty. We have a big garden, so they certainly have lots of stuff for them to do. Well, So basically, the bottom line is never getting dirty as a kid might be hazardous to your health in the future as as a grown-up. Well, I have to say, I got plenty dirty. I got head to toe dirty pretty much every day that I, at least when I lived in Georgia all those years. Up till, uh, I don't know, age 11-ish, um, dirty every day. My parents couldn't stop <sighs> us. My poor mom, I think she was a little bit of a clean freak. She, she would scrub us head to toe, but we were filthy for most of the day. You're a dirty girl, Nurse Amy. <laughs> <laughs> Here are some things that you might consider. How about avoiding antibiotics? You know, the medical profession may have been remiss in over-prescribing antibiotics, but there are antibiotics in your food as well. As a matter of fact, 70 to 80% of antibiotics are given to food-producing livestock, not to treat infection, but to make them grow faster and get them to market sooner. Stick with antibiotic-free eggs, milk, and meats. That's, I think, a really good idea. Now, antibacterial soaps absolutely do not want you to use them. Matter of fact, the active ingredient in many brands has recently been banned by the FDA due to the risk of antibiotic resistance occurring and the lack of evidence of any medical benefits. So just use regular soap and water for washing. That's all you need to do. Um, Now, your hand washing strategies, instead of washing your hands 
uh, obsessively target that to the situation. If you're in a city where there are a lot of open sewers running through the streets, people are tossing buckets of you-know-what out the window, well, then you have your kids wash their hands conscientiously. In clean environments where there isn't a raging epidemic going on, however, don't freak out if they have dirty hands that much. And also speaking about dirty, don't necessarily bathe every day. Not only should your kids be exposed to dirt to develop their immune system, but bathing too often might do more harm than good. Daily showers removes protective skin oils and causes drying and irritation. You're also washing away the good bacteria that lives on your skin. Yes, you have bacteria that lives on your skin. It's supposed to be there. You might give your kid a pet. Now, not every kid has a good fortune of living on a farm. You know, they don't have a lot of animals around them, but, you know, they do benefit possibly from a furry pet. Dogs seem to give more resistance to colds and allergic skin reactions like eczema than cats do, but actually... It's thought that early cat exposure might give more protection against asthma. Why not have both? That would be fun, have a little menagerie. Yeah, and hopefully you don't have a mean mom like I had. Oh, what you do? Beat the dog? No, 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 no. Remember how I just mentioned she was a clean freak? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I don't think you deleted that part. I I really don't mean offense to my mom. It's it's just an exaggeration because I'm a little bit of a drama queen, but... You are. <laughs> Just a little bit. What's with that? Just, I, you know, it adds more excitement into your life. Yeah, uh, I don't think I'll you, say. <laughs> I don't think you dislike it. <laughs> but anyway, because she was a extra clean person, we'll say, uh, she wouldn't let any animals in the house. No, none of, ever. Never. Never, oh, never, wow. never, never. We, we had dogs and cats in Georgia, which was great because we lived out in the country, but... Our remaining dog that we brought with us to South Florida, she wouldn't let in the house. And the poor thing didn't last too much longer after we got home. It was very sad. Oh. I know. Well, that Isn't is that true. terrible? So I think your point of having an animal is not to keep them outside because how much exposure do you really have on a daily basis with an animal that's outside, but to keep you know, find an appropriate size type animal for the home. Yes. And so the child can have more interactions and more chance to have exposure to these allergens you're talking about. Right. So I think that's an important point. I think so, especially when they're young. Don't lock them out. Don't lock the poor animals outside. And don't lock the kids inside. Get your kids outside. (laughs) It's the whole thing. Right. Get the kids outside. Bring the animals in and and send the kids out. You might be reluctant to let your kids go outside by themselves. I mean, I know we have legitimate concerns these days about kids' safety. But you know what? Here's an idea. Why don't you go out with them once in a while? Take them to the park. Take them to a wilderness area. Go on a hike with them. Go places where adults and kids can enjoy life and reap some real benefits. Camping, camping, camping. I cannot emphasize camping. I remember our camping trips. It's just the most awesome thing. Despite how miserable and how much your kids complain at the time, (laughs) (laughs) they'll remember it fondly. It's funny. They won't remember the miserable parts so much, you know, the, the, the humidity and the water that's inside the tent when you wake up and everything is wet. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) Everything was soaking wet. Um, But they'll remember the fun. The canoe trips and the hiking and the the animals you find and 
and just the cool stuff. I think it's great. And if and if you're at home, have them help you manage your garden a little bit. I think that yes. that would be a good thing. And the bottom line is, the more you encourage outdoor activities <clears throat> early, apparently, the more they become next a part of the next generation's culture instead of just sitting at home looking into this staring at the the smartphone you know let the kids get a little dirty and you might give them a healthier future speaking of kids kids it's a rare parent who hasn't had to deal with this problem at one time or another ear infections oh yeah that's right in some cases it's a very chronic problem it affects the quality of life of an otherwise healthy child I know Stephanie had some problems with that. Was yeah, actually, both of my kids. The older one was about to have uh, tubes inserted, but I I waited and waited and waited because I just did not want them to do that. I I just felt really negative about tubes unless you – it's the only choice. And at that point, I think she had had gallons of antibiotics already and just couldn't get better, the poor thing. How but, old was she? She was two at this point, which is really old for having tubes because, like I said, I just refused. I just kept treating her and treating her and treating her. And I finally said, okay, that's it. We have to do something. She just can't suffer like this anymore. And she went for her pre-op, her anesthesia, and she was very sick. She had just terrible cough terrible deep bronchitis from these ear infections dripping in there and they wouldn't put her to sleep which I actually said I don't think you guys should give her anesthesia so she ended up not having the tubes and within a few months she actually finally outgrew them and then the youngest one had the same issue but I didn't get tubes into either of them Um, I know there's some controversy and, and you know it's like getting vaccinations everyone has their their side of the story, and for me, um, I just uh, putting tubes into somebody's ears after just a few ear infections. I, I didn't feel comfortable with that, so they never ended up having it. But uh, and apparently, I had a lot of ear infections. I still have scarring in my left ear, which you yep. t- you took a look in my yep. ear. I look with an otoscope. Today? The instrument. Was it today? Yesterday. This morning? Yesterday? Yeah, I use the, an instrument to take a look inside, and indeed, you have. A normal area except for one area that's clearly got a scar. Yeah, apparently. On the eardrum. um, From what my mom had told me, I had tons of ear infections. So So let's Uh. talk a little bit about ear infections. And the most common issue you'll see relating to ear infections is, of course, pain and discomfort in the area, earache. And that's especially in kids. Your ears are divided into three chambers. An external chamber, which is what you can... If you put your finger in your ear, that's what you're touching. Uh, Your middle ear and your internal ear or your inner ear. If the ear is inflamed, they call it otitis, O-T-I-T-I-S. And it's best diagnosed by what I just mentioned, an instrument called an otoscope, O-T-O-scope. And the most common ear problems you'll see is the outer ear, otitis externa. Uh, a, a infection, infection in the outer ear, and an infection in the inner inner no the middle ear called otitis media. media. That's yes. right. Now, otitis externa is also known as swimmer's ear. It's an infection of the outer ear canal, most commonly affecting kids about four to maybe fourteen years old. And cases peak during the summer months when a lot of kids go swimming and wind up getting bacteria, maybe not the cleanest water 
into you think a public their pool ear canal. Might, yeah, might have some <laughs> issues. It might be, or the local <laughs> pond. You know, yeah. you never know. Bacteria can easily accumulate and multiply in water or sweat that's caught in the ear canal. So hot, humid environments do play a role. And what you'll see in these cases, you'll see pain or itching in the affected ear. And if you pull on the ear, it makes the discomfort a little worse. You might have ringing in the ears. That's called tinnitus, T-I-N-N-I-T-U-S, or uh, problems hearing. Uh, you might notice a discharge from the ear canal and some redness and swelling in near the uh, opening to the ear. Uh, and it could drain some inflammatory fluid. And also, if, if you're having it personally, you might feel a lot of pressure in the ear, almost like you have something in there. Yes. Yeah, it, it's just it, it, like you want to relieve the pressure. That's why you'll see some kids sticking objects into their ear. It's because they have most likely an ear infection, although they could have a foreign object, and they just want to stop that pressure. They feel like if they get something out, they'll feel better. So if you notice your kids sticking something in their ear, you might want to check them for an ear infection or at least a foreign object. Now, severe cases of this can easily be treated with oral antibiotics, things like amoxicillin, five, five, uh, 250 milligrams three times a day in an elixir form. You'll find that pretty common. You can make your own elixir out of fish mox, regular fish mox, not fish mox forte, though you want the lower dose, and that will help. And so ibuprofen, also Advil, those kinds or aspirin might help to decrease discomfort. Uh, they do have uh, some warm compresses that you can use if you want to use a home remedy. Uh, those are sometimes used for pain control. Uh, there are eardrops that can be useful. You would apply them on a regular basis for about a week. And if you're going to put eardrops in a person, always put it with the person laying on their side so that the eardrops do get into the, the entire canal. Now, the most common cause of earache is actually not swimmer's ear, not otitis externa, but is otitis media, the middle ear, an infection of the middle ear. Now, normally, when you look with an otoscope, and I'm going to talk about how to use an otoscope in a minute, the eardrum is sort of a pearly gray, and it is shiny. Now, when they're shiny, when there is an infection in the middle ear canal, the eardrum appears sort of dull, and that's because there's inflammatory fluids, maybe even pus, behind the eardrum. And when you have a bacteria or a virus entering the middle ear, that usually occurs as a, doesn't occur necessarily from it coming in, going into your ear and going somehow through the eardrum, but oftentimes comes in through, let's say, the eustachian tube because of inflammation due to a cold or other respiratory infection, maybe even strep throat might do it. So the passageway for the infective organism, the eustachian tube, will run from each middle ear down to the back of the throat. Now, the normal purpose of this tube is to regulate the air pressure and to drain secretions from the middle ear. The blockage of these tubes causes accumulation of this inflammatory fluid in the inner ear or middle ear chamber and therefore an ear infection. These are much more common in kids because their eustachian tubes are relatively narrow and more horizontal than adults and as such they are harder to drain. So that's why kids get otitis media much more than adults do. Uh, it's most commonly seen in infants and toddlers. Um, this is why, by the way, also the moms are cautioned against bottle or breastfeeding with their baby lying flat. You want to have the head up when you're doing that. 
You can expect it to present with a number of symptoms. Uh, let's say pain, of course, pain, uh, earache, uh, more so when you're lying down. Uh, kids will appear to have difficulty sleeping. They'll be crying. They'll be irritable. Might have a fever. Uh, they, their appetite will be sort of down. Uh, they may actually sort of put their hand to their ears, try to hold or pull on the affected ear. You may see fluid draining from the ear, and the child may actually have difficulty hearing. So this is a problem. Also, your organs of balance are sort of near that ear in the, in the, uh, in the inner ear chambers, um, and so you may notice a little dizziness or a little vertigo, as they say, in situations like this. Now, in adults, the external ear canal is about, oh, two to five centimeters long. But it's much shorter in kids. And, and in kids, it's even shaped differently. In kids, it's relatively straight, but it's not exactly straight in adults. So in adults, if you're going to be looking inside the ear with an otoscope, which is basically, it looks like a, a big pen light, I guess, is the best way to put it. It's something in adults that you would have to actually pull on the external part of the ear, that's called the pinna, the part that you can actually touch with your hands, and pull the pinna upwards and backwards. And what that does allows you to get a better view of the eardrum, or the eardrum is also called the tympanic membrane. Now, if you're going to be doing this with a child, they freak out a little bit when they have instruments put in their ear. So always start by explaining to the child what they're doing that it might feel some a little bit weird, but that it shouldn't hurt. Okay, choose you would choose an otoscope, uh, which comes with a number of different ends on it, you attachments that you put on the end that actually go in the ear. That's called a speculum, by the way. And you just pick one that's on the smaller side, so it's appropriate for a child. Now, if you're looking in the left ear, you should hold the otoscope in the left hand. If you're looking in the right ear, you should hold the otoscope in the right hand. Now, I seem I hold an otoscope like I would a hammer, for example. It seems to work best for me because what happens is I rest my knuckles against the side of the head of the person I'm examining, and so I can't really put it too deep into the ear, so it actually might be uncomfortable. But you could hold the otoscope also like you hold a pen or a pencil, and some people feel this gives you a better feel, but, you know, different strokes for different folks. I learned one way, and it actually now is just sort of second nature to me. So what you want to do, if somebody is complaining of pain in their left ear, let's say, you want to look at the right ear first because you need to see what the normal anatomy looks like in this person. And also, you don't want to transfer the an infection from the left ear, which is the infected left ear, to possibly the right ear by moving the instrument from one from the infected side to the to the clean side. So start on the clean side, take a look and see what's normal for that person, and then go on to the other side and take a, a good look. This is uh, very important. Remember to pull on the ear if it's an adult, and but you don't have to do that if it's a kid. Remember that their ear canal is relatively straight. Now, the first thing you're going to see is the external canal wall. And so you want to look and see, is there redness? Is there swelling in the area? Could that be the sign of otitis externa or swimmer's ear? Uh, do you see debris? Do you see an excessive amount of wax? Is there a foreign object, for example, in the ear canal? I mean, now, 
don't be surprised if you see hair. Hair is very common, very normal. You see that in just about everyone. Even, even kids will have it. But I want you to look at the end of the canal. At the end of the canal, you should see the eardrum. And a normal eardrum, as I mentioned before, is going to appear sort of pearly gray. It's going to be shiny. It's going to look sort of transparent or translucent. You should be able to sort of see through it. Not like a pane of clear glass, but sort of a little bit translucent, perhaps. Now, if there is fluid behind the eardrum, inflammatory fluid or pus, you may notice a yellowish color to the eardrum, and it will appear dull in a, as opposed to shiny. So these are cases where there's most likely an infection, most likely an otitis media. If there's redness and swelling in the canal outside of, where the, uh, of the eardrum, then that's probably swimmer's ear or otitis externa instead. Now, in the very worst cases of otitis media, the eardrum actually appears to bulge out towards you because there's so much pressure from the fluid. These kids are usually, or these people are usually in a lot of pain. Now, although severe infections are treated with antibiotics as well as um, Advil or Tylenol or aspirin for pain, in extreme cases, sometimes they have to do, as Amy mentioned, surgery to put these plastic tubes in the eardrums to allow uh, through the eardrum to allow uh, the drainage of all this pus. Now, hopefully you won't get to that point. You can consider maybe some alternative remedies in milder cases or in times of trouble when you've run out of antibiotics and things like that. And so here's one method that you can deal with it. First, you would take some rubbing alcohol and, and some vinegar, make a mixture of about equal quantities, or uh, you could use rubbing alcohol and maybe hydrogen peroxide. And what you do in this circumstance is place three or four drops of that stuff into the affected ear with the person, the person's head tilted so that it stays in the ear, it doesn't flush out. Wait about five minutes and then tilt the, head, tilt the head to drain the mixture out. And so that's something you can do. Next, you can use some warm olive oil maybe, or maybe add a drop of uh, essential oil of uh, tea tree or eucalyptus or lavender perhaps, to two ounces of olive oil. And then warm the olive oil slightly. You want it to be sort of warm. And place maybe two to three drops into the ear canal. And this doesn't necessarily have to be drained or removed unless it's annoying to the child. Uh, now, a cotton ball with a couple of drops of eucalyptus oil has also been used. You secure that to the ear opening while they're sleeping. And that's something that with tape you have to use. Uh, and that's something that might make them feel a little bit better. There are other natural remedies. You might use... Uh, Rubbing alcohol and vinegar. I just mentioned that. Equal qualities. Okay. I just wanted. I just want to say that actually is what I found one of the best remedies. Yes. And it was given to me by my pediatrician... How? By many, an actual doctor. Many, many years ago. <laughs> I and won't say how many, but many. <laughs> an actual doctor. And yeah. Now, let's say you're in a collapse situation. There was nothing there for you. You didn't have any of this stuff. At the very least, take a sock or some other cloth and put it into heated water. Wring it out so it's not soaking wet. And just place it on the outside of the affected ear. It might help a little bit. Just like applying warm compresses oh, may cause warmth. drainage warmth is good. of a abscess. Let's yeah, say. just be careful it's not too hot. Yes. Be super careful. Warm 
moist is good. Like that, like you were just saying, a warm mo uh, washcloth. Okay. Hey, oh, one thing I wanted to yes. talk to people about before I go much further, and that is, uh -huh. I wanted to talk about yes. the Tell joy me, and the satisfaction. The uh -huh. joy and the satisfaction <laughs> that you out there can get from helping the elderly. <laughs> And the elderly I'm asking you to help today is me. I'm elderly, but you can also help your family You're also. You're borderline elderly. I'm borderline <laughs> something. You can help you and I would and not your... call you elderly, but okay. <laughs> you can help your family out by getting a copy of our brand new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, our our second edition actually hit number one again years after it came Yay. out. It is today number one in its Kindle version on Amazon in several different categories. I don't know what All happened. All three of but, them. All three of the Kindle go, version. But you go, girl. Categories. That's what I say to, to that. But our third edition, you get actually 700 pages, even more pages, even more topics, 150 of them, <clears throat> that you might have to face if you're the medically responsible person in a disaster, an epidemic, or a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> um, there was a an article on our book on oh, yeah. Huffington Post. Well, ordinarily we wouldn't expect to hear from the Huffington Post. No, but, not, not if you are a prepper, but, usually. But thanks to um, Stacy. Chalemi, Chalemi, who is a contributor to the Huffington Post, actually got a hold of a copy of our book and, unbeknownst to us, wrote a very, very nice review on at on the Huffington Post website. And we do appreciate that. Shocking. And maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe, maybe. that's the case. It's very Stacey, surprising. I owe you a beer. Thank you, darling. Yes, we certainly. Maybe she'll want a glass of wine. A gla maybe we or a glass, a glass or a glass of, wine. of white's wine. Absolutely, <laughs> or a merlot. <laughs> You're so funny. Anyhow, you can this find... This is coming our... from a guy who doesn't drink, folks. <laughs> of course, you can find our book at Amazon.com, on our website at doomandbloom.net if you want a personally autographed copy. Why would you want that? I don't know, but thank you. There are a lot of people that seem to want it. Uh, put us in, our, in your survival library. I promise you that you'll be glad you did. And... Please, please consider buying the third edition, which is even more extensive than the second edition. I think, actually, it's awesome. But, of course, I guess I would, wouldn't I? Well, you know, it did take six years to write it, so I understand. Six years of my life. Oh, my gosh. What am I going to do? Yes. I want to spend a few moments talking a little bit about bleeding wounds. We've talked about infections, and we've talked about allergies, and now I want to talk a little bit about trauma. And, of course, in modern times, you know, we're very fortunate to have the ability to have the ambulance at our beck and call and to have the ability to stabilize an injured patient and pass them on to a higher medical resource. That is truly a blessing. Believe me, if you had somebody that was really sick, and you couldn't get them to a hospital unless you read our book in detail. You actually won't be very confident that you can deal with the problem. And so we have to realize that there are going to be some circumstances, especially in disaster settings, where stabilization and transport to a medical facility might be, well, 
pretty much impossible. I mean, if it's a situation where there are a lot of casualties, well, you have only a certain number of ambulances, only a certain number of hospital beds, and of course, they may be overwhelmed by, just like they were, let's say, in Hurricane Katrina, where a lot of the medical personnel had to deal with just tons and tons of patients that had injuries, had infections, had illnesses that had to be dealt with and taken care of. Now, bleeding wounds, these are especially problematic and you have to take quick action if you're going to prevent a life-threatening situation. Now, bleeding can be venous, can be arterial. Venous blood sort of looks very, very dark red, blackish red almost. Uh, it drains steadily from the wound, but arterial bleeding, that is usually bright red. And the reason why that is, is because of a much higher oxygen content. Oxygen causes the red to be much brighter and lighter color. And arterial bleeding will come out in a different way too. It will come out in spurts that match the pulse of the individual. And of course, since these blood vessels run close to each other, if there's trauma, serious cuts can have both types of bleeding. Now, it's important to know the effect on the body of a certain amount of bleeding. You can sort of guess how much bleeding somebody's had by how they look. Now, interestingly enough, you can donate a pint of blood without any necessarily major symptoms. You might feel vaguely dizzy. And you might get uh, movie theater tickets, too. Oh, yes. And, and save a life. Think about all the benefits of donating blood. I highly recommend that. Absolutely. Once you hit about one and a half pints of blood, you're still probably not going to see a lot of effects. But once you get beyond that, let's say 1.5 to maybe 3.5 pints, well, your body starts noticing that you are <laughs> losing blood. And what it's trying to do, it's trying to pump oxygen to your system. And to do that with less blood, it's got to pump faster. And so the heartbeat speeds up, the respiration speed up, because you're trying to get more oxygen into your body so that the heart can work harder to get that oxygen to the body. And what happens is the skin starts becoming cool and pale your patient will appear agitated. That's how they're going to act. They're going to be agitated in appearance. These people might be going to shock. 3.5 pints and above, when, let's say 3.5, to 4 pints or more, then you start having not enough blood to even fill the blood vessels. And the blood pressure, as a result of these deflating, I guess, arteries, begins to drop. And when that happens, less blood is going to places like the brain. And when you have less blood to the brain, it affects your mental status. So this person, instead of being agitated, many times will appear just disoriented, will appear confused, lethargic. Instead of nervous, they'll be sort of agitated. Despite that, the heartbeat is still going a mile a minute. Matter of fact, it's going even faster than if they lose less blood and over four pints of blood, you have a very pale victim. That person might be unconscious. May not be enough blood pressure to get enough blood to the brain to keep them conscious. And as the blood pressure drops further, then they reach a point of no return where the heart rates and respirations may decrease. And without a major intervention, that person might be close to death. Now, 
when you encounter a person with a bleeding wound, start <clears throat> with direct pressure. Direct pressure is the first course of action in most cases, especially with venous bleeding. Most of the time in that circumstance, direct pressure on the bleeding area might stop bleeding all by itself. And of course, if you have them, put on medical gloves. These will help prevent contamination by a dirty hand. If not, at the very least, grab a bandana, a cloth, something else that will serve as a barrier between your dirty hands and the wound, which is obviously going to be internal to the body. Now, some people believe in compression points for the area. That may decrease bleeding. Now, these are locations where major arteries come close to the skin, and pressing on this area may stop or slow, at least, bleeding further down the track of the blood vessel. For example, you got a large blood vessel behind each knee. It's called the popliteal artery. If you have a bleeding wound below that level, maybe in the lower leg, applying pressure on the back of the knee may help stop the hemorrhage. You have to know the map, though, as to where these particular points are, and that is something you need to have some training for. You know, I think that we're, gosh, no, I think I could talk for maybe just a short time. I will say that if simple pressure fails to stop the bleeding, it's going to be pretty obvious before long, a matter of fact, almost immediately, especially if there's arterial bleeding, that you got to use a tourniquet. If you have arterial bleeding, things are spurting out, honestly, I would say use direct pressure, but get that tourniquet out, use it fast. It might be the first thing that you should use in this situation. And commercially made tourniquets that are popular include the Soft T, my favorite, the cat tourniquet, the SWAT tourniquet, very versatile, can be used as a pressure dressing as well. You might consider having two tourniquets, one for you and one for another member of your party. I know that many police officers like to have a couple of tourniquets when they can get a hold of medical supplies at all through their department. Some, I, we have some police officers that get some of our kits and carry it with them or in their vehicle. We are out of time. Holy cats. We will be back next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We appreciate it. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.